Hear the word of the Lord from Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides that, that we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight the paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, so that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The word of the Lord. Let's try this Mercy Hill Church. He is risen. Right. Well, welcome. Happy Easter. Happy Resurrection Day. We're so glad you're here. My name's Brad. I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill. And we are continuing in our study of Hebrews. And we're so glad that you're here. There, there's coffee and some snacks and water to your left. And then the restrooms are to the rear. So we want you to feel at home. And we're so excited that you're here, that we get to celebrate Easter Sunday together. A quick story for you before we look at this text. My boys and I were loading firewood a couple of weeks ago. A tree fell at the end of our street and we went down to get some of the wood that had been cut up. 
and a friend or rather an acquaintance who we've gotten to know in our neighborhood was walked up and making small talk with us and this guy isn't a church goer. Um, he, he's been over to our house several times for parties. Uh, he and his girlfriend and their four kids will show up sometimes uninvited, um, sometimes just their kids. Um, so you, you just never know but they're friends nonetheless and he happens to be a, a rigger so he installs audio and lighting for huge concert shows and, and he asked me I think he had done some installations for some larger churches he asked do you have any big plans for Easter you know he's just making small talk and I didn't know what he was thinking like Easter bunny dropping out of the rafters like what do you mean by big plans and my response to him was simply no, not really. We're just going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus like we do every Sunday. And we'd love to have you come and join us. And when I was reflecting on that this week, and uh, I didn't mean to minimize or downplay Easter in any way, but the resurrection of Jesus is way too big of a deal. The gospel, which means good news, and it's a story of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. It's way too big of a deal for us to compartmentalize to a couple of Sundays within the year in which maybe we would show up for his birth and show up at Easter. But rather, the gospel saturates all of our lives. The gospel infiltrates every part of us as we allow it to. And the gospel saturates us in such a way that it begins to change the way that we live, not just a couple of Sundays throughout the year, or not even just on Sunday, or just when we're with other Christian friends, but it changes the way that we relate to one another and the way that we understand that God relates to us as friend. And that's all day, every day. And that's what we want to celebrate. And so we're committed, you guys know, to teaching through the Scriptures because we, we're all about Jesus and we think that the Scriptures are where we'll find Jesus. And as we teach through books of the Bible, what that allows us to do is it doesn't allow us to skirt around all the hard stuff. And so today is one of those passages of Scripture that's honestly kind of some of the hard stuff. And uh, it may be one of the weirdest Easter messages you've ever heard. And I'm, I'm fine with that. Alright? If you're fine with it, I'm fine with it. Because I can promise you this. We're going to get to Jesus. And that's all that matters. Um, today's not one of those messages where the tomb is empty. And the Easter basket is full. And it's just that fluffy kind of. But instead, we're going to look at the text that was before us. And in it, we're going to see the way that the scriptures and and. As much as the scriptures, yes, but even so much more, Jesus helps us to know how to deal with suffering. How to deal with suffering. The big idea for today is that Christian suffering strengthens us and helps us to finish well. Christian suffering strengthens us and helps us to finish well. Look with me in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
That first word, therefore, tells us that we have to look back at chapter 11. Therefore always is a signal. What's it there for? And as we look back at the last 40 verses of chapter 11, you will remember that we looked at that, not hall of fame, but rather hall of faith as we saw a biblical timeline of all these Old Testament prophets and different individuals who were faithful story after story of men and women and this is the key men and women who lived this life with tremendous discontentment tremendous discontentment in every one of their lives they found discontentment in the world And as a result, they followed God. They trusted in a better plan than the plan that they could create for themselves. They trusted in a better place than this country that they find themselves in. And so we pick up in verse 1. Therefore, the writer says, since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. It sounds like this cosmic coliseum in which this great cloud of witnesses is looking down at earth as if we are their stage and as if we are running a race and they are cheering us on. And as exciting as that sounds, I don't want to disappoint you, but that is not at all the case. The truth of the matter is, is that Those who have gone before us don't look down over us. They don't care for us. They are no longer with us. Therefore, there is no need for us to pray to God through any other prophet or priest or no other king than the person of Jesus. And listen, folks, while it may disappoint some of you to hear that your mom and your dad or a loved one, someone who meant so much to you, isn't looking down over you, God always gives us what's best. He knows what's best. And so we know that because of Jesus, he is our mediator. And think about it with me just for a moment. The idea of eternal souls entering back into the chaos of sin and death on earth, it would strip heaven of its delight. Because heaven is a place in which there is no more suffering and there is no more pain. It's a place where all will be made new. You know, last week we looked at this idea of a biblical faith. We talked about the path of a biblical faith. Not one that's an idolized faith in which we look to this world to try to grant us all of the treasures and wealth that we would hope for. The healing that we would long for that can only come through Jesus So we talked about a biblical faith, not an idolized faith, but also not an abandoned faith. And as we talked about that biblical faith, I've been reflecting on this phrase. This is just kind of a side note, but it it fits in with this message. I've been reflecting on this phrase that Jesus offered up. Jesus said, the poor you will have with you always. I've just been meditating on that phrase for about the last month. And as I, as I think about that, I think oftentimes that's a phrase that Christians might bring to mind when they find someone that they don't want to help financially. I don't really want to give you my cash. And Jesus said the poor we'd have with us always. And we see it almost as an excuse But I've come to realize I was talking with a friend who's planting a church in the city. We're just talking about how hard it is in an urban context, in a context where people are different than us. Maybe people don't want to hear the message of Jesus. 
And we came to the conclusion that what Jesus meant was that the poor you will have with you always. That they'll be your friends. That they'll be part of your community. And that there will be people who are poor in this life. And I don't just mean financially. I mean, they'll, they'll be poor from an education perspective. They will never have the kind of education that we hoped and dreamed that they would. There are those who are poor from a mental health perspective. Let's be honest, guys. There is sin that has wreaked havoc on our lives. And for some, that sin has brought wounds. And for others, it has brought damage. And the truth is the poor we will have with us always. And when I think about that, it brings me great hope in Jesus Because the whole message of Jesus is this world is not our home. It's not all that we have. And so it causes me to look to Jesus with great hope and to look to glory and to eternity and to heaven and to say, there will be a day in which cancer does not exist. There will be a day in which broken relationships are no more. There will be a day in which divorce and death is over. And we will be with Jesus. And we will see him face to face. The poor you will have with you always. We face suffering in this world. And so we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses in the midst of this suffering. And and in that, the writer is telling this group of people, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Think about those phrases for a minute. Every weight and sin which clings so closely. It seems as if he is talking about two different things here. He's using the analogy of a runner or an athlete. Um, And if you've ever run, you know that you got to have the right clothing on. Like if you've ever done anything with sports or if you've ever watched the Summer Olympics, you know no one runs in a trench coat, right? I mean, it just it might look cool, but only superheroes do that because they have superpowers. But no one else does, not even Usain Bolt. He doesn't run in a trench coat. He might try to run with a cape, but, um, but we all have to wear the right clothing, right? And uh, I think I've got a picture for you. So I'm a runner and like to run. This is probably my favorite picture because uh, running down Bill Street, it was 18 degrees that morning. Um, St. Jude Marathon had been called off. It was my first marathon. And I said, I'm running. I don't care. And uh, if you'll notice, I don't have a lot of clothes on. I've got like a short sleeve shirt and some sleeves. And I've got uh, some tights on, some gloves. My ears are covered. I'm good. Why do I have such few clothes on and it's 18 degrees? Because runners don't really need a whole lot. They get hot. We don't need a lot of clothes. The Greeks, so... The writer who would write this, they might even be thinking about the Greeks. You can take my picture down. In the Olympics. And, uh, you know, they would exercise with weights on. But the Greeks, when it came time for the Olympics, man, it was, they, they ran naked. So, hey, we have freedom in Christ, but we don't have that much freedom, okay? <laughs> so that's what the writer is. This is the kind of analogy he's saying. Let us lay aside everything that we don't need in order to run well. And that's not just sin. We should lay aside sin, but the writer's encouraging people in order to finish well, they must also lay aside anything that hinders them. And here's the key. Anything that hinders them from looking to Jesus. 
I think if the writer wrote this today, he would probably say, lay aside some of your technology and lay aside some of your entertainment. Because just a real quick side note is, I talk with people all the time and they say, I just don't have time to read my Bible. I just don't have time to spend in prayer. I just don't have time to meet with Jesus. And our kids are spending on average eight to nine hours a day on their phones. That's the average, eight to nine a day. And adults are spending two or three hours a day on social media while they're supposed to be working. And then they'll come home and they'll spend another two to three hours just kind of vegging out, getting ready to go to sleep, watching TV. And I'm surprised as we say, I just don't really have time to spend time with Jesus. Let us lay aside every weight and every sin and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Not someone else's race, our race. The race is set before us. There's an expectation in the Christian life that we would finish well. And that we would continue to grow in the likeness and the fullness of Jesus. Not because we have the strength to do that alone. But because he's given us his spirit, the one who saved us. And he's given us his spirit, the one who sanctifies us. And so that we would grow up into him. And God is so committed to our good that he will use every circumstance we face. Every circumstance in order to draw us closer to him. Look at verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. It's just got real, real quick. Like this writer is talking about this great cloud of witnesses. I mean, there's this encouraging passage it's a great cloud of witnesses as if, you know, we're being cheered on. And now he's talking about blood? What in the world? Like the Christian life, Jesus is not supposed to wound us. He's supposed to heal us, right? I mean, as we come to know Jesus in America, Jesus is all about bunnies and Chick-fil-A. Right? I mean, it's all the good stuff. There's not supposed to be pain. Why is he talking about blood here? Remember the context of this passage. It's the same context for us. The Hebrews were facing immense oppression. They had lost property. They were facing imprisonment, public ridicule. Maybe not exactly the same, but we face some of these things, and people all across the world do. They're facing harsh times. And now in this next section, the writer is going to share something that for a lot of us is going to be the point where the train is going to come off the tracks for many evangelicals. There's something he says in verse 7 that you are going to struggle with. Look at verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. I'm smiling because that's a good thing. And he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have... 
We've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Verse 7, I think, is what makes this passage so tough. It's for discipline that you have to endure. It's for discipline that you have to endure. The writer seems to be saying that the Hebrews are facing suffering as a part of God's sovereign plan in order to grow them up into maturity. Don't miss this. He's not saying their suffering is primarily the result of sin in their life. He's not saying that. He's not calling them away from specific sins like we would look at a Corinth or, or another church. But instead, it seems that it's God's direct plan in order to grow them up into mature followers who will share in His holiness. This is really difficult for us to wrap our minds around. And I think for a couple of different reasons. The, the first reason it's difficult for us to really understand why God would bring intentional suffering into our lives is because of that word father. Because most of us don't have a good context for father. We don't have a good uh, context for what it means to have a loving father. We are a society of absent fathers. I think it's one of the greatest graces in my life that I count that God gave me a father who was, as far as I know, he worked kind of a, what most people would probably consider a fairly boring job at the post office. He was a window clerk most of uh, his working life. But he was, as far as I can remember, regularly home at 5.15. And he was available in order to play basketball, or football before we sat down as a family for dinner. And he taught me a couple things. He taught me how to love God and how to love the scriptures. And he taught me how to work hard. And those are things that were invaluable to me. But I've talked with so many of you and I've heard your stories. And we don't all have that grace in our lives of having a loving father. I've heard many of your stories and consistently I hear of divorce and dad just wasn't around or even dad tried to kill mom or dad lied or dad cheated or dad faked cancer. Just crazy stories that I hear about our fathers. And I just want to encourage you that, that if that's your story, that you're not without hope. That as you look to your heavenly father, he has given you a family of relationships that are around you. At Mercy Hill, we are structured around missional communities. So we do a lot of life outside of Sunday morning. We share a lot of meals together. We study the Bible together. We're a spiritual family of servants and learners who are seeking to be on mission together. And in the midst of that, you have fathers that you can look to as examples. In a sense, you can be reparented. There are men throughout this congregation who are seeking to love the least of these. And God is, is writing a beautiful story where we see children from foster care and children who are adopted 
And you can look around and you won't find any perfect fathers. But you can find some men who are seeking to grow in the likeness of their heavenly father. The second thing that makes this passage really difficult for us to understand when it comes to discipline and the way in which God brings struggle into our life is, is just that word, discipline. Now, I grew up in the 70s. Um, and I grew up with, with two words that I didn't hear until I made it to Memphis. But I experienced them my whole life growing up. And I didn't know I was experiencing them. I didn't even know what the words meant. But they were a part of my life. There was this kind of term that comes in two words. And it's called home training. And some of you guys know what I'm talking about. I experienced home training growing up. And that's a really nice way of saying mom and dad don't play. Like, I experienced discipline. And uh, some of us experienced discipline. And maybe, maybe for you it all wasn't always done in love. Because none of us have perfect parents. And so, home training usually begins with the words, go get a switch. Or go get the paddle. Or you hear that sound that you still kind of jump at and twitch when you hear a belt like breaking the speed of sound as it comes through the loops. It's like dad was ready. And for some of us, we grew up in homes. And let's be honest, I grew up in the 70s. Time out had not yet been invented. Time out was the time that you waited in your room when it was bad enough. And mom said, you wait for your dad to come home. Time out meant, let me see how many pairs of drawers I can get on before dad gets home. Because I know this is going to be rough. <laughs> and you feel me? Yeah? yeah? Mm-hmm. So when we think of discipline, a lot of times the things that come to our mind, you know, are, are home training. Sometimes done well, sometimes done in love, maybe not always done in love. The other thing that's tough in our society is the opposite of that. Because we live in a society today in which it's tough for us to understand discipline because we have shifted in our society to a culture in which a lot of kids are running families these days. And uh, we're so busy trying to be our kids' friends I don't know if you've seen this or not. I witness it in restaurants all the time. As people ask their kids to do things over and over and over again, and the kids have figured out, as long as mom and dad just ask me to do it, if I don't want to do it, I know who's in control. And the kids kind of like it. I remember one of my friends who had kids who were older than me, and one of his little boys looked at him one day and said, you're not my friend anymore. And my friend was kind of sarcastic. And he just turned and looked at his son and said, that's fine because I wasn't going for friend. I was going for parent. And while maybe that sarcasm is not the best, there is some truth in the sense that when it comes to parenting as loving parents, there are times when we have to discipline our children for their good. And I'm not just talking about corporal punishment, but I'm talking about training them up. It's a pain. Staking work. It becomes more complicated and more difficult the older that they get. But we've all seen the results when children don't experience discipline. We've seen the results. It's not a sign of favor. It's a sign of neglect. It's a sign of rejection. It is 
I've often found it interesting that when my kids go astray and when I have to take time, especially when they were young, when I have to take time to really put discipline in place, that when I would do that, and I would give them boundaries, and I would think, I really don't want to do this. This makes me feel really bad in order to have to inflict some type of pain among, on my children. What I would find is that when I disciplined them in love, that they would actually come back to me and that the boundaries that I put in place would actually make them feel secure and that what I thought would push them away would actually bring them closer. Isn't that interesting? Now, when we think about discipline and God's training us, Andrew Murray says this, I have a quote for you. He says, in every trial, small or great, First of all, and at once, recognize God's hand in it. Say at once, my father has allowed this to come. I welcome it from him. My first care is to glorify him in it. He will make it a blessing. We may be sure of this. Let us by faith rejoice in it. That's difficult. That's very difficult in our lives. This brings up a lot of questions for many Christians because most of us want to excuse God from all the suffering that takes place in our lives. But the Bible clearly teaches that God is sovereign over all things, even suffering. The scriptures root our hope in the reality that God is not the author of our suffering, but he is with us in our suffering. Many of you guys know the famous quote from C.S. Lewis that God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to arouse a deaf world. I'm guessing that that quote probably came in C.S. Lewis's wife after the death of his wife. But to say that God is not the author of our suffering isn't exactly clear. And this is where it gets difficult for many Christians. Turn with me to Job chapter 2, if you would. Job chapter 2. Listen to these three verses. Job chapter 2, verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. He took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. This was after his family had been killed, after his cattle had been killed. There's no one left but his wife. And at this point, he's probably ready for his wife to be gone as well. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, turn with me to the book of Acts and look at chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. Listen to what Luke writes, verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, 
to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God is not the author of our pain in the sense that God does not do evil. But clearly, in the death of his own son, he has ordained evil. How could that be? Surely the most unjust act in all of eternity. Jesus, pure and righteous. He grew up knowing from an early age that God's plan for him was to die unjustly. Andrew and I were talking about this that this last week. Have you ever thought about the fact that as Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, if you read the chapter of Isaiah 53, it becomes very clear exactly how he would die. And he knew that, I believe, from a teenager forward. He knew exactly what awaited him. He was sacrificed for our sins because it was... Because it was the Father's permission? No. More than his permission, it was God's will. The Bible clearly says that God is sovereign, that he is good, and that he has purposes even in our suffering. If you'd like to study more about this topic, I would uh, recommend to you the book by Justin Taylor and John Piper, Suffering and the sovereignty of God. Now, this passage ends with a stern warning that as we face suffering regarding the Lord's discipline in our lives and and how he is using it to produce righteousness in us, look what he says as we end this passage. Therefore, in verse 12, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. He seems to be saying that if we don't get this right on the idea of suffering, if we don't come to understand that sometimes God is a God who wounds in order to heal, that there is a danger that we may just miss God. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. If we're not careful, we'll allow our suffering to do a couple of things. The first is we'll allow our suffering to make us bitter toward God. And if we aren't careful, we'll allow our suffering to become an excuse to justify our sin. I think that's what the writer is saying here. Look back at verse 15. He says, see to it that no root of bitterness springs up. In the midst of our suffering, it's so easy to blame God because we're like little children who anything painful we believe can't be good. But there's no doctor who would ever agree with that. It's why we must trust God. Even in the midst of our pain, we we move from discouragement to hope as we trust God, even when we don't understand and 
And God's given us a community that we can lean on. He's given us people in order to receive the truth that we oftentimes can't see on our own. From our own stories. The thing is why if we want to move toward healing in our own stories. If we want to grow up into maturity in Jesus. We have to become very familiar with our stories. And there's a sense of of healing that takes place and understanding even just by sharing your story with others who are close and caring, who are listeners. Come to see ourselves and how God is at work even in the midst of our pain. Secondly, physical suffering cannot be an excuse to justify our sin. Esau is the example that he uses. And many of you know the story of Esau. He forfeited his birthright because he was hungry. He traded the blessing of God. God said, I'm going to bless your entire generation. I'm going to bless the whole world through you, Esau. And he forfeited his birthright. He traded the blessing of God for a single meal And he counted what is physical of greater value than the hope that he had in God for the future. As we think about this passage and this warning in the book of Hebrews, as we think about suffering in our own lives, how does Jesus on this resurrection day, how does Jesus' example help us in facing suffering? Listen to this last passage from Isaiah 53. As Jesus faced suffering, listen to what he faced from verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see And be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus experienced the greatest suffering that any man or woman will ever experience throughout all of eternity. And I'm not just talking about the physical suffering that he experienced. I'm talking about the judgment that he experienced on the cross. The shame that he experienced. But look how Jesus dealt with his suffering. Look back at verse 2 from this passage. Hebrews 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Despising the shame. What unusual language the writer would use for the way in which Jesus faced his suffering. I love the way that John Piper has described the meaning of despising the shame. I want to leave you with this. Shame was stripping away every earthly support that Jesus had. His friends gave way in shaming abandonment. His reputation gave way in shaming mockery. His decency gave way in shaming nakedness. 
His comfort gave way in shaming torture. His glorious dignity gave way to the utterly undignified, degrading reflexes of grunting and groaning and screeching. And he despised it. What does this mean? It means Jesus spoke to shame like this. Listen to me, shame. Do you see that joy in front of me? Compared to that, you are less than nothing. You're not worth comparing to that. I despise you. You think you have power? Compared to the joy before me, you have none. Joy, joy, joy. That is my power. Not you, shame. You're worthless. You're powerless. You think you can distract me? I won't even look at you. I have a joy set before me. Why would I look at you? You're ugly and despicable. And you are almost finished. You cover me now as with a shroud. Before you can say, so there. I will throw you off like a filthy rag. I will put on my royal robe. You think you are great. Because even last night, you made my disciples run away. You're a fool, shame. You're a despicable fool. That abandonment, that loneliness, this cross, these tools of yours, they're all my sacred suffering. And will save my disciples, not destroy them. You're a fool. Your filthy hands fulfill holy prophecy. Farewell, shame. It is finished. As we face suffering in our lives. We too can say, farewell, shame. It is finished. For the joy that was set before him. Jesus showed us how to suffer. And he showed us how suffering enables us. Not just to get through the suffering. Don't miss this. Suffering enables us to look through this world and the sorrow and the pain and to look with anticipation to the joy of life with God. To peace and to hope that this world simply do not offer. On this Resurrection Sunday, I just want to ask the question, even in a room, as small as this, I want to ask the question, what are you trusting in for peace? And what are you trusting in for joy? Where do you find your hope? You know, there are times if you ever have friends who aren't regular churchgoers, maybe you even invited someone to attend the service with you today to come on an Easter Sunday. And they just said, you know, all that Jesus stuff, I'm just not into. It's just too crazy for me. I didn't grow up believing all that. And guys, honestly, when you step back and look at the truths and the claims of the Bible, they're pretty crazy. The fact that God lived as a man and that he died for you and for me and that he rose again, it's pretty wild stuff that we read about in this book. But let me ask you a question. What are you trusting in Because I've come to the conclusion that as wild as this story is and as great of a faith as it takes us to believe, our only other hope is ourselves. Either you're trusting in Jesus or you're trusting in yourself. And if you're trusting in yourself, how's that working for you? 
Because given enough struggle and given enough pain and given enough life, you will see that there is a hope that is needed that is far larger than anything this world has to offer. I believe that hope is Jesus. If you don't know him, would you give him a chance? Would you just explore who he is and what he's done for you? He can offer you life. Yes, eternal life, but life even now. Forgiveness of sins. Life. Eternity. Through his son, God can offer you life through Jesus. I'm going to invite all of you who are followers of Jesus, all of you who are here today and you've said, I've trusted in Jesus. I've bowed my knee to him. I've confessed that he is Savior and Lord. He's King of my life. I want to follow him. I want to invite you to his table today. I want to invite you to come and celebrate today. And as you celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, take a moment, consider the pain and the suffering that you face in your life. Recognize that it's only through Jesus that he doesn't enable you just to get over it. That he enables you through the pain and the suffering to see through this life and to see eternity and to see the peace and the hope and the joy that he offers. Would you bow your heads with me and would you pray? I want to ask our musicians.